You'll find it helpful to have that passage open in front of you, Psalm uh, 68. Now, carnival parades mean different things to different people. I don't know if you've ever been in a carnival uh, parade. I grew up in a village where the carnival parade wasn't really all that exciting. Actually, it was an occasion when people got soaked with rain. Uh, It was this sort of affair. I remember one year we had to wear green crepe paper and all our clothes got stained green uh, by this green crepe paper that your cub masters forced you to wear as you sat on this slow-moving float going through town. That's what I think of carnival, a bit like Otley Carnival, except worse, don't get me wrong, a lot damper. It was a miserable affair, and the carnival king and the carnival queen, well, they were always kids whose parents organised the carnival, allegedly. That's what I always thought anyway. But in Rio... The carnival parade is quite another affair. Rio de Janeiro, it's fun, it's energetic, there's hot weather, everybody's out in the streets. Now if you ignore the excesses, it's quite a great community event. And people all over the world gather there to celebrate this great carnival parade. Well this morning in our passage, David, the author of our psalm, picks up imageries from different processions and parades in scripture. For example, the ones that we read earlier in Numbers and Samuel. And it's sort of there in the background, but we'll see as we go along, this is really uh, all the way through the psalm, a unifying theme, a thing that brings it together. David here is talking about a procession, a parade. Now, it's not exactly a carnival, it's more of a victory parade, a victorious procession after a victory has been won. Why? Well, because David recognises what God has done and who God is. So let's dig into the psalm and see what we see about our amazing and wonderful God. The first thing that we see is our God saves his people and scatters his enemies. Now, there are nine verses to this psalm. We're not going to look at each one of them individually, otherwise there'd be nine points, which would be quite excessive, wouldn't it? Uh, We're not going to look at them all in order either, but we are going to look at everything in the psalm. But first of all, we see that God saves his people. Have a look at verses 5 to 10. Again, God saves his people. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. Now, leading atheist thinker Richard Dawkins once wrote that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticide, it goes on. Friends, this may come as a surprise, but I don't think that Richard Dawkins has really read his Bible, has he? Look at the picture that we see of God here. A father to the fatherless. Those without parents he cares for. Orphans he looks after. He's a protector of widows. 
the vulnerable widows with no income or hope or future in that society. God cares for them. There were no old age pensions in those days. They depended on other people. They depended on God, and God cared for them. He's a friend of the lonely. That's really what it's getting at there. The isolated, the sidelined. God is a friend for them. There's so much loneliness in our society, isn't there? But God is a friend to the lonely. He's an advocate for victims of injustice and war. Those who have been imprisoned due to war or those who have been wrongly enslaved or imprisoned. We're told here that God fights for them. We're told he's a fountain to the flock. The picture of God is, uh, of God's people is of sheep in need of pasture. David knows that imagery well, doesn't he? David was a shepherd. God waters the fields. He provides them with pasture. Even as they walked through the desert of Sinai, God provided water for them. He cared for them. He looked after them. And it's all summed up at the end with that phrase, you provided for the needy. God, our God, is a provider for the needy. Those in need, God helps. The picture that we get here of God is of a loving, caring, compassionate ruler for his people. I mean, is there more a compassionate picture of God's care for those in need than the verses that we find here? This is our God. Me? No. Moody? No. Maleficent? Never. God is a saviour to his people. He's a hero. Now, I like reading books about heroes. I'm reading one at the moment, and uh, it talks about the hero in this way. Someone's talking about him. And they say, these names that you are called tell me that you are a great man. I have seen great men. The chains you lifted from my wrists tell me that you are a strong man, and I have known strong men. The lives that you have saved this day will testify unto eternity that you are a good man. But I have never seen or known a man to be great, strong, and good as well. But here is our God, great, good, and strong. We've no need to be embarrassed of our God. The picture that we see of him here is wonderful. David tells us of this wonderful God that we have. But I don't know about you, but then it leaves me thinking, well, what about verses 1 and 2? What do we read there? God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so shall you drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. God saves his people, but we see here as well that God scatters his enemies. The first part of that verse is a quote from Moses from that passage that we read earlier. Apparently every time the Ark of the Covenant was taken up to be moved, they would read that verse out loud. Uh, God arise, let his enemies be scattered. But as you read this, as you read the sort of shocking imagery that we get, you might be thinking, well, hang on, doesn't Richard Dawkins have a point? Isn't this what he was talking about? Well, we can go on the defensive here, can't we? But uh, let's think this through. What have we seen about God just now? He is loving. He is caring. He is compassionate. Who then are those who oppose him? Who are those who hate a God like that? Aren't they the widow makers? The father killers? 
the advocates for war and injustice, the creators of the needy. Actually, don't we want those people to be scattered? Those who oppose the the good and right rule of our God? They might dub themselves as freedom fighters, but really, if you think about it, they're terrorists against the sovereign rule of a rightful good God, bringing discord and destruction wherever they go. What will he do with such people? Well, like I said, the image is shocking, isn't it? They will melt like wax before him. They will dissolve and blow away like smoke before our holy and righteous God. They'll be scattered, never to regroup. Now, we have to be careful here as we read this. As David wrote this, he would have people in mind. The Philistines, for example, who constantly invaded and attacked God's people. The Canaanites, who still harmed God's people in the Promised Land up to David's day. Perhaps even the followers of Saul, who opposed David's rule and chased him down for most of his, a big portion of his life. But we must remember, for David, God's kingdom was a physical kingdom with physical boundaries and physical enemies. We need to be very careful not just to map over what we see into the Old Testament over into the New Testament, where we don't have a physical kingdom in the same way. So Paul writes in Ephesians 6, it's on the back of your notice sheets, Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What what Paul is telling us there is that our enemies are no longer people, but powers and principalities, summed up traditionally as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's over these that ultimately God has his victory in Christ. That is what God is defeating on the cross, through Jesus dying on the cross. But, that said, this still involves people. Whilst people are not the enemy, people are caught up in this. That same book, Ephesians 2, talks about those who follow the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the devil. Those who live according to the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And he talks of them as sharing the same fate as God's real enemies. In other words, those who live for the world, the flesh and the devil, share their fate. And the terrifying language used here for the fate of God's enemies also applies to those people too, melting like wax before him, blowing away like smoke. It's a shocking picture of what the Bible calls hell. But before we get all self-righteous, here's the problem. Isn't this us, deep down? Don't we follow the crowd? Don't we live for our own desires, if we're being honest with ourselves? But the gospel proclaims that those who were once God's enemies can be his friends. Instead of being scattered, actually, there is now a time where God is gathering people. In fact, all those who are now part of God's people in one sense were once his enemies. The caring and compassionate God that we have talked about also offers forgiveness to the sinner, pardon for his enemies. But only if they turn to him for pardon. Not everyone is pardoned, not because God is unmerciful, 
but because we are spectacularly stubborn. Even though God has made a way by sending his son to take our scattering, to melt like wax before him on the cross, we still say no, don't we? And those who take them on themselves will be cast away from God, scattered. God saves his people, but he scatters his enemies. That's what we see in the first point. The second point is going to sound a bit familiar, but with a bit extra. God saves his people, scatters his enemies, and settles in Zion. He saves his people. Have a look at verses 19 and 20. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God the Lord belongs deliverances from death. David here blesses his God. He praises him for the way that he rescues them again and again. This is not a one-time event, but he daily bears them up. That literally means he carries them. Or it can mean that he bears their burdens for them. Either way, he cares for us, not once in a millennia, but daily, every day. He knows our daily burdens, our jobs, our family, our stresses, our strains. And he carries us daily. I don't know if you're ever a fan of that uh, poem in the 90s, I vaguely remember it, uh, Footprints, where you, you always had a sort of picture of a sunset going down over a beach. And uh, it said, you know, God was walking with someone and they look back and they say, but Lord, you left me. There were only one set of footprints. Why did you leave me when life was hard? And he said, oh, and on those points, when, when life was hard, I carried you. It's got some merit to it in a way. Because actually, really, this is telling us that it's actually even better than we think. As we think of our walk with God here, we look back and there's only one set of footprints. It's not that only at points when it's hard God is carrying us. Actually, the picture here is that God carries us daily. There's only ever one set of footprints, if you like. God is carrying us. He's caring for us daily. It says here that he delivers us from death. He is our salvation. Not that he brings us salvation. Not that he offers us salvation. He is our salvation. He offers us, actually, himself. He's not a means to something greater, as though salvation was something greater than God. He is the greatest. He is our salvation. He's what we're saved to. He's the goal of our salvation. Not just an escape from hell, but a relationship with the living God. If we have him, we are saved. If we don't have him, we're not. And that's what we come to next. He scatters his enemies. Have a look at 21 to 23. But God will strike the heads of his enemies... The hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, and the tongues of the dogs may have their portion from the foe. Now again, we get a really quite shocking picture of the fate of God's enemies. Struck on the head by God, like the serpent was to be struck on the head in Genesis 3. God will bring them from the highest mountains. That Bashan, as we'll see in a few minutes, is a high mountain. He'll bring them from the depths of the sea. That his people may dip their feet in the blood of their enemies. That the dogs may feast on the blood of the slain. 
Now, it sounds awful, but it's a picture of the complete and total victory over evil. Similar imagery is used in the New Testament in the book of Revelation, as earth is harvested like a grape harvest. But we won't understand this, why this is good in a way, until we understand that there's no real peace until God's enemies are defeated. If they are the unsettlers of the peace, then there cannot be peace while they hold sway. We see that in verses 11 to 14. Let me read those to you. When the Lord gives the word, the women announce the news, are a great host. The king of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil, though you men lie among the sheepfolds. The wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. You see, here actually, the defeat of God's enemies is a cause for rejoicing for God's people. The women proclaim it in huge crowds, while the men lie down in the fields. And some of the women are thinking typical. You know, the women do the work and the men lying there in the field. But it's a picture of rest and safety. It's now safe to go and lie down in a field. It's again images of sheep in pasture. They can settle down. And this is only possible because their enemies have been defeated. If they hadn't, they wouldn't be able to settle down in peace. They wouldn't be able to rejoice in the victory. Think of VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. I don't know if you've, I know some of you are a bit too young to have studied it at school. We seem to study it all the time at school, the Second World War. But VE Day was Victory in Europe Day. And there were people dancing in the streets. There were street parties. Why? Because the war was over. The enemy had been defeated. You could only have those sort of parades and, and, and parties when the war was won. Jesus, we're told in the New Testament, has defeated our enemies of death, hell, and hell, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's an occasion to rejoice. But until you understand that those forces, death and hell, the world, the flesh and the devil, are seeking to destroy us, you won't see why it's good news that Jesus has defeated them. We need to remember, as we said before, what we're saved to, but we also need to remember what we're saved from. We're saved from those things, they are bad for us. So victory over them is a good thing. And the victory of God and the defeat of his enemies will be like snow on a dark mountain. Zalman, that word there, literally means dark one. It was a, a big mountain that was particularly dark. But when it was really cold, or when there was a, a particular season in winter, snow would fall on top of it and cover the blackness with white. He's saying here that it's as though God is covering over the darkness, the evil, with whiteness, with purity. God is defeating evil. But God doesn't dwell on that mountain, on Zalman. It tells us here that God has chosen to dwell on another mountain. God settles in Zion. Have a look at 15 to 18. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts from men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord may dwell there. 
Now, Psalms, we've got to remember, are poetry. They're poems. And we see here a great example of the poetry in the Psalms. We see a mountain that's jealous. Now, you can't really do that normally in stories, can you? A mountain that's jealous. Bashan was the greatest of all the mountains in that area. Tall, but it was covered with fertile land, a real god amongst mountains. The rain fell on Bashan because it was so high that when the clouds went past, it sort of fell on the top. And it meant that all its sides were fertile, that you could grow things on them. So it's sort of a bit of a cross between Ben Nevis and Norfolk. That was the closest I could sort of get to it. I know they're very different pictures, but you've got the sort of fertility of Norfolk mixed with the highness of Ben Nevis. That's what we've got here. So it's a wonderful, amazing mountain, a god amongst mountains. And yet, this mountain is jealous. Why? Because God has chosen another mountain to make his dwelling. Mount Zion is clearly the one in mind, even though it's not mentioned by name. Mount Zion was the mountain in Jerusalem where David had moved the ark and the tabernacle. The one that we read about earlier where David danced as it was brought in. The ark, the Lord is now among them, they'll say. The ark of the Lord bringing with it thousands upon thousands of chariots, victory. God will fight for them in his army. What it's saying here is that the power and magnificence of Sinai, if you think about that picture with all the thunder and lightning, all that has now come to Zion. Sinai is now within the sanctuary. The God of thunder and lightning and awesome power is now to be found in Jerusalem, in the tabernacle. God has ascended on a mountain. Not Mount Sinai now, but on Zion, the mountain of Jerusalem. At Sinai, God had ascended out of Egypt and brought with him the captives from Egypt, the Israelites. The tabernacle was built by contributions from the Israelites. They donated their gold and their silver and their precious things to build the tabernacle and all the items that was within it. It was the rebellious generation, actually, that died in the wilderness that built the tabernacle. That's what it's talking about there. Even the rebellious bring their gifts. So powerful and awesome is God that even the rebels did his will. And now that powerful, awesome God has made his home in Zion. The saviour and the scatterer is with David in Jerusalem, keeping his people safe and scattering his enemies. And there is an outcome to that. There is a way that this affects us all. Next point. Our saviour and scatterer leads us in triumphal procession. I won't read that to us uh, due to time, but if you glance down 24... At uh, 35, you'll see there a picture of a procession. In the background behind the whole of the psalm has been this image of a march. A march from Sinai as people went into the promised land. Um, and also that picture of the Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem. Indeed, when they went from Mount Sinai into the promised land, they defeated uh, King Og. He was king of Bashan, which has been mentioned so frequently in this psalm. When he mounts to uh, Mount Zion, as we read earlier, it was accompanied by singing and dancing, even by King David himself, which was apparently a bit of a scandal. Even King David danced and sang before the Lord. It was such a joyous event. So what is the response to God who saves his people and scatters his enemies? It's a victory march, a victorious procession. 
David uses the imagery of Sinai and the imagery of Zion to picture this march. Some of it may have been used, this psalm, as the ark was brought into Jerusalem, or when the ark itself was carried into battle. But here is a procession into the tabernacle. The language here of the temple is used, but the bricks and mortar temple wouldn't be built until after David. But there are singers, there are musicians, there are percussionists. Apparently there's no word for somebody who plays the tambourine. Apologies if you play the tambourine, but apparently you just have to call them a percussionist. There's Benjamin and Judah, Zebulun and Naphtali, the north and the south, the greatest and the least. Did you notice here that in this procession, it's the least that comes first? Didn't someone say in his kingdom that the greatest would be least and the least would be greatest? Just a thought. There are kings bearing gifts. Kings from all over the world. Egypt, Cush, which is sort of Sudan, Ethiopia area. Indeed, not just Israel, but all the kingdoms of the earth are invited to join in this victory march. To join their voices together to sing praises to God. In verses 3 and 4, Israel was invited to sing praise to the one who rides through the desert. Who brought them through the wilderness. Well, now the whole world is invited to sing the praises of the one who rides in the heavens. The one exalted higher than the clouds. Who rules in the skies, the heavens above. It's not any pagan deity like Baal who rules the skies. Who sends rains. Who controls the mighty winds. It's the Lord God. It's Yahweh, the God of Israel, who now calls the whole world to join in the victory march. Verse 34, ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary. So lastly, if that's what that is, we are to join the triumphal procession. We're to join the victory march. We have a choice this morning. We can join the victory procession or we can face God as our enemy. We can join in the song that they're singing. Look at 26. Bless the Lord in the great congregation. The Lord, O you, who are Israel's fountain. 28. Summon power, your power, O God, the power of God by which you have worked in us. 35. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. We can join in that song. That should be our song as believers. Or, the other option is verse 30. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herds of bulls with the calves of the people. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the people who delight in war. And remember, I said that's where we all start, isn't it? We all deserve to be scattered, but God graciously gathers us together. But if we choose to join the victory march, what does that look like? Well, it means gathering to rejoice in Christ's victory and sing his praises to the world. Gathering to rejoice in Christ's victory and sing his praises to the world. Let's pick that apart for just a few last minutes. Those he rescues, he gathers You notice this is all done in the great congregation. A victory parade of one is not very impressive, is it? If it's just one person following afterwards, it's it's not even really a, a parade at all, is it? But this is a victory parade of millions. It makes sense too that if he scatters his enemies, he gathers his people. 
And that gathering is the church. The church is the great victory parade of Christ. Gathered by Christ. Led by Christ. And this makes sense then of how this psalm is used in the New Testament. You see on the back of your notice sheet, I've got Ephesians chapter 4. I won't read it all. Let's uh, just look at the first few verses. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. What does he give? Then verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for works of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. In Ephesians 2, Paul has already been saying that the church is God's temple being built by Christ. Well, now he shows how his temple is built. Not by receiving gifts, as he did in Old Testament times, but by giving gifts. His new temple is built as the risen, ascended Christ apportions gifts for people in the church. And then gives those people to the church for its building up. So God is still in the business of building temples, only now his temple is the church. He builds it as he gathers us together and we build one another up in love. And the victory parade is growing and gaining momentum as the church globally is growing as Christ builds his church. And we at Bethel are part of that victory parade. This is part of our identity. So we too should be gathered, uh, characterised by gathering. To be scattered is curse. To be gathered is blessing. Those he rescues, he gathers. Secondly, those he rescues rejoice in Christ's victory. This victory gathering is characterised by rejoicing. All the way through the psalm we have commands to praise, to sing. There are musicians, there are tambourines. And that's not particularly an instrument that's known for its sombre nature, is it really? A tambourine. The thing is that, though, that life in the gathering is hard, isn't it? If anything, it's tougher to live as a Christian than it is to live in the world. So how can we be characterised by rejoicing? Because the rejoicing is in Christ's victory. It's his victory parade. It's because of his marvellous victory that this parade is happening. When was his victory? His victory was in his death and resurrection. His death as he conquered sin. His resurrection as he conquered death itself. Verse 20 takes on more of a literal meaning, doesn't it? Our God really does rescue from death itself. So whatever is happening in life, we know that Christ has overcome. We know that ultimately we will overcome through him. We know that victory, victory is ultimately ours. So even if our life seems like a never-ending stream of failures, we still have reason to rejoice in Christ. The victory parade is Christ, and if we are in Christ, we share in that victory. Now that will look different in different circumstances. It's not talking about going around with an inane fixed brim on your face. But it does mean that there's never reason to despair even in our darkest hours. It does mean that victory will finally be ours in Christ, so we can rejoice. We can sing to the Lord in words and in our hearts, even as we go about our day-to-day business. Those he rescues, he share, shares in, share, those he rescues share in Christ's victory. And then finally, those he rescues sing his praises to the world. I put 2 Corinthians 2, 
14 to 16 on the back. Let's read those together. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance of life from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? There's a sense in which this victory parade is a message to the world. Just as in the psalm, there are those who are being saved and there are those who are being scattered. To those who are being saved, the victory of Christ smells of life. That's what it says. The battles won are battles against their masters, sin and death. The same victory march polarises people though. Because actually to others, it's the smell of death. It's the carnival parade, if you like, of Christ. And like those carnival parades I spoke about at the beginning, it means different things to different people. But in this case, it's one and the same parade. It's the people that are different. Life to some and death to others. To some, it smells of life as we see the victories of Christ defeating our enemies. To others, it's their defeat and it smells of death. And that explains the different reactions to Christ himself. To some he is life, to some he is death. That explains different reactions to the church. To some he is life, to some it's life, to some it's death. After all, as we said before, in one sense, church is the victory parade of Christ. The one that we all join in. Now sometimes church might feel like that dingy old wet carnival that I talked about in Driglington, not the one in Otley, where I'm from. But it shouldn't do. Let's do our best to respond properly to the victory of Christ. Let's rebuke our hearts when they're prone to despair, reminding them that Christ has won the victory that counts. Let's rejoice in his victory and sing his praises to the world. Until the victory march that we're in now is the final one, when all evil is defeated and we can take our rest in glory. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we've got something to rejoice about this morning. Father, even if our lives are difficult and hard at the moment, Father, thank you that you are carrying us day by day. Father, pray that in all circumstances, we would remember your victory and rejoice in it. Father, pray that that would sustain us until that final victory when we spend eternity with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.